Hi everyone and welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science podcast where we look at how behavioural and social sciences are being used in the real world to help change the public's health for good. My name is Stu King and I'm here with my co-presenter Dr. Tiango Motel <laughs> as we put as we write his name also known as Tiago Motella. How are you Tiago are you well? Uh, hi Stu yes I'm, uh, I'm very good I'm, I'm glad to see that we're still sticking to this um, new naming system that we've adopted. Mm. Mm. Um, well I like so I like to keep it fresh. Like no, I can fresh. see that. You're definitely keeping it fresh. Um, fresh and trendy as well, because I think it's got a nice nice ring to it. Yeah, yeah. That was like the phonetic spelling of your name. Um, <laughs> but uh, I... I uh, well, the phonetic spelling you used yesterday. Um, I'm really excited, though, Tiago, about interviewing Pete today. Um, do you know why? Uh, I'm sure you're going to tell me. Uh, why because I am, a, I am a transport enthusiast. This oh. is something that... Pete says in the show that I realised I'm also a transport enthusiast, so uh, I'm also known as a geek. I suppose you could you could call it. Is that is that more socially acceptable term for geeks enthusiasts? Do we think? Mm, yeah, I think so. But I, I, in reality, we do offend. Well, I do offend <laughs> Pete several times during the show, calling me <laughs> geek. So, um, with that in mind, is it worth just introducing who we're actually talking to now that we've sort of maligned him before the show starts? Yeah, let's go for it. Um, yes, we're very excited to speak to Pete Dyson uh, today. So, Pete Dyson joined Ogilvy's behavior science practice in 2013, and then in 2020 moved to the UK Department for Transport as a principal behavior scientist tasked with a COVID 19 response sustainable behaviour change and internal capacity building. He's now pursuing a PhD at the University of Bath, examining how policies designed to reduce urban car dependency are being targeted at different people's capabilities, opportunities and motivations to travel more sustainably. See, I've just noticed 2020 is a great time to start start um, working on travel, i.e. there was none. <laughs> so <laughs> what was he? Point. What was Pete doing for that first exactly. part of his career? I do wonder. Anyway, do we'll, we'll ask him. We'll ask him next time we speak to him. Um, yes. So we're really excited to, to speak to Pete today, and uh, I think that the show is really good. Pete is delightfully and wonderfully geeky about transport, yes. and, and I think his book Transport for Humans is also excellent. So, without any further ado, I think we'll go over to the show. Let's go. Okay, welcome to the show, Pete. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, Pete. No problem at all. Um, so, Pete, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about uh, your journey to where you are now? It spanned a few different fields. So my original undergrad degree was in human geography. So you're looking at people and their interaction with place and how they understand the world. Um, I was interested in... Um, communications and joined an advertising agency after straight after university there and was fortunate because uh, a year or two into me starting there a behavioral science team emerged uh, so this is Ogilvy yeah. um, in about 2011 um, with a background in social science and some research that was um, around cultural geography and, uh, and social theory I joined that team um, and then spent the best part of the next 10 years um, as we grew it out from three people or so to, to 15 or so uh, working with, uh, we'd say clients, but companies, brands um, that had behavior change challenges. 
I gravitated more towards um, pro-social behaviour, sustainable behaviour, charitable giving and organisational change. Um, while I was there, the head of that team, uh, Rory Sutherland, um, who's influential and spoken about so many different topics and subjects you could hardly believe, but we uh, found a very much common ground looking about uh, looking at transport and travel behaviour mm. um, and progressed a sort of an idea and an argument that uh, transformed into um, writing a book together called Transport for Humans, which I suppose we'll get to. We started uh, that writing process in a little bit of an upside down way the world sometimes turns. Um, that led to doing initially a secondment um, with the Department for Transport in the UK, so the Government Transport Department, yeah. um, which you'd think you'd need to make a write a book to convince someone to do, but actually um, it went that way around. Uh, there was a lot to do and the COVID pandemic hit. I carried on working there and um, then spent the next two and a half years as we built out a behavioural science team there. And there are now about eight, eight people there. Um, and I made the choice last year to take a slightly different turn and um, uh, take on a PhD, which um, I thought has been a little while coming. So now I've been private sector, briefly public sector, and now um, in back into university yeah, um, great. as a different space to develop some more skills, to conduct some individual research. Um, yeah, and uh, that, that's where I am. So I'm now at University of Bath. And my research is in, um, would you guess it, psychology of transport and travel decision-making, uh, particularly looking at car, car ownership. Amazing. And and um, Pete, I'm, I'm really interested. So, so when you were at Ogilvy and you said you had clients there or, or, or companies who had behavioral science issues, what did they come saying that or did they say they had a marketing issue or they had a, a, a buy, you know, they wanted more, more customers or whatever and you classed it as behavioral science or did they come saying that? Yeah, good question. Um, we did always call them cl cl clients, yeah, and that does. There is a business up there as a consultancy will describe, mm. um, uh, and you need to create and identify services that are useful to your to your clients that they want to um, spend money yeah. on. Um, and you do also need to create some methodologies and some processes that um, involve doing a tractable amount of research. So. No one typically there isn't the patience or maybe the budget to spend a year or two looking at something. Yeah. Um, but equally, it, you don't want to respond uh, straight from their first inquiry to say, "Ah, oh, well, obviously you have this problem, and all you need to do is that, and then put the phone." Yeah. Out. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think uh, the people that ended the companies that ended up working with. Um, the Ogilvy behavioral science practice typically did say that they had a psychological or behavioral really? issue partly because the building's so big I mean this is a sort of a 12 story big building in London of which we're a small team there are other teams that can already for decades have been working on um, customer acquisition or loyalty programs or yeah. marketing so um, for it to reach our desks and our email inboxes it would typically been slightly more specific mm. i always did like the, the way in which actually very seldom where we was the task get people to buy more of this yeah, thing yeah. and much more um ones where we're we're selling this shaver but people actually aren't using it 
the way right they're not using it the way they intended and they're not happy with the shave that it's given them or um, people are misusing this particular product or the wrong people are buying this product they'd be better off buying that well these are, i mean i i actually think um that is a really interesting position to be in and i i sort of I'm not surprised that's the position that, that Ogilvy found themselves in because they're sort of quite well known. I don't know how well known they are in our industry, in public health or in health and uh, well-being or even a, 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 across government, actually. But to, to uh, a sort of behavioural science and marketing geek uh, like I am, uh, that they were. I've loved all of Rory's talks and books and whatever in the past and stuff. So I was... Um, I was really excited when when um, I started reading your book, and, it, and I, I, I don't know that I knew it was um, you and Rory first off, and then I thought, oh, we worked at Ogilvy, and then looked and went, oh yeah, this is co-written. <laughs> so I, I sort of thought, oh, that's that's good. Um, and I think that is their office in Blackfriars. I think I went past it the other day by accident. Yes, yeah, the uh, office was in Canary Wharf for quite a number yeah. of years, and then um, in two thousand and sixteen, moved to Sea Containers House next to the next to the Oxford yeah, Tower yeah, on the it. South that, Bank. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Ogilvy did do. Um, I think this speaks to quite a lot of agencies. You need to build up case studies mm. and credentials in a certain area in order to get more work. Yeah. Um, there's some sort of adage. Uh, won't quite get this uh, idiom right, but sort of, it's like having two case studies means you're a client conflict like yeah. uh oh we, you, we can't work for you because you work for them once you've got five or six suddenly you're a specialist and an expert in that, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, sure. field in ogilvy's case they did long-standing work with public health england um and did uh some of the creative work for the change for life campaign right right okay um, and then also led to some other public health communications yeah but a lot of these agencies kind of sit in the background and governments will commission work um, from agencies, but as con 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 uh, normal people, but also as academics, we don't always understand um, who are the people behind them. Sometimes we assume it's that government department, but actually they've commissioned that um, from, from a yeah, private sector consultancy or agency. And what, what sort of work was that in terms of the, the public health link? Um, I think the Change for Life work was the, the direct marketing work. So uh, MNC Saatchi came up with a creative campaign with that um, colourful artwork mm. that um, we might remember from yeah five or ten years ago. And then uh, it took um, direct marketing and uh, work to, uh, to to bring that to life in different ways. What's interesting about that is I actually worked in public health England when that was all developed, and I didn't know that Ogilvy were involved in it. So they really must have hid themselves quite well in that in the background of that uh, at work. But there was that interesting moment when they they picked up huge sort of I don't know if it was sponsorship or partnership with Disney and people like that. So they sort of all of a sudden shifted what was a, a pretty good um, but bespoke campaign, and then all of a sudden got all of the benefits of the the association with Disney. Um, was that in the Ogilvy time, or is that sort of after? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, and not unusual to uh, leverage different media partnerships mm. and get uh, get things out there as well. Um, I also did a lot of work for RAP, and whether you not you think food waste is part of public health, I'm not sure, but it comes into food choices and dietary choices a little yeah. bit. So RAP is a sort of uh, an arm of uh, Defra, right, right. Um, so uh, looked at uh, yeah, recycle 
yeah, recycling, reuse, and um, food behaviour. So, Pete, you've you've done you've done the the rounds a little bit, and you've gone through the different parts of of uh, the industry around transport. Um, but what what are you doing now? Then, in your in your PhD, you're studying um, transport from an academic perspective. What what is it you're doing now? Then, what are you studying? Uh, the thesis is looking at um, theories of social cooperation and how they apply to um, transport uh, policy. So typically uh, transport policies and interventions are quite individualistic or narrowly economic. Um, a, a person or a household will be able to apply for something and they'll get that back and that's about it, where, where it where that mechanism sort of ends mm. but the literature shows the importance of uh, social norms the importance of people understanding what others are doing and I think I'm particularly latching on to the extent to which transport and travel is itself quite a collective and cooperative action yeah. um, whether that be us all adhering to road rules and road etiquette um, but also the extent to which we rely on others especially in our local area yeah. So it seems like there's some extra collective benefit for people to know about how their neighbourhood might be transitioning to less car ownership. So my my choice to take a car out of my driveway or off the pavement is of direct benefit to my neighbour. Um, and it seems like there are ways in which we might coalesce and bring, bring people together a little bit more. Uh, there's a particular novel policy that's being trialled in Coventry that I'm looking at, um, partly because it has some uh, new data that um, should be really interesting to uh, to look into. Yeah, I, th I think that's particularly interesting, isn't it? Because when, when I think about transport and moving uh, from A to B, um, it tends to come to mind as a kind of individualistic thing, isn't it? Is me moving from A to B or me commuting? So I think thinking about from that perspective, of social and how it depends on, on the social dynamics and it's not just me moving it there's a, a collection of people um, I think that's that's very very interesting to add that social element into to that yeah and I think there's a strong asymmetry of information which is we see everybody else around us and yet we know so little about their trips so how do we ever collect information about other people's travel behavior so when you go out on the road or or bus or what have you um later today people are buzzing around but you've got no idea where they're coming from where they're going to you can guess that if it's 5 30 then people are going home from work um, but you don't have much more insight than that and i think that's sometimes where new information is quite arresting to people where they hear about say the high proportion of journeys that are less than a mile or two um, or the way in which lots of leisure trips uh, leisure trips comprise of much greater proportion of um, trips than you might expect commuting so it's sort of 20% of journeys and as being a bit of a transport nerd or geek I obviously love seeing those charts but I also see the potential in that yeah. um, um, I would say boldly correcting or giving people a more accurate sense of what's going on because without that more accurate or more uh, unified sense of what's going on then we end up generally disagreeing over whether a policy or proposal may or may not work simply because we're standing from totally diff opposite 
perspectives. Yeah, um, I think Pete is. This is one of the. So it sort of brings us to the fact that you've written the book Transport for Humans. I have to admit to you, I read about half of that book. I, I, I had fully meant to read the whole thing, but ran out of time. And you know why I ran out of time? Because I kept writing so many bloody notes. I was like, oh, this is great for the innovation hub. We're trying to. This is great for blah, blah. Um, so, um, yeah, that's. that's. So it's a good reason that I didn't get all the way through it. But, all right. That's the kind of compliment yeah, um, yeah. Uh, an author would like to receive, I suspect. Yeah. Uh, if you only got halfway through then i suspect i'll say you're missing the the best half the second oh, half well you Actually, would say the second that. half's pivoted That's just marketing yeah. activity. You, the yeah. second half's pitched yeah that was very good the second half's pitched a bit more at people working in transport and transport professionals yeah. but tells a slightly wider story which is to say the book's sort of set up as part one of an introduction of, of how transport generally works how it's worked in the past how transport as a sector is getting a bit left mm. behind by being less customer centric um, the middle part looks a bit more at the phenomena of how we think, feel and behave when travelling, the phenomena of how on earth do we navigate, how do we um, yeah, choose where to go, how do we pick what mode to travel, uh, how do we think about tickets and delays and build travel habits. Then this last bit says what happens when humans, when people start thinking about transport problems. Um, and there's some commonalities there of gravitating towards quantifying um, uh, behavior, an emphasis on quantification on measurement, um, an emphasis on using averages or aggregate statistics, mm. um, when designing infrastructure, a tendency to be overly optimistic about the time and budget overruns, which let's yeah. face it, every project ever. film newspaper headlines yeah. uh, year on year, regardless of the infrastructure project. And then what happens when we're in big organizations trying to make transport planning or transport design happen, um, the importance of diversity and group decision-making. So it looks a bit more at that practitioner uh, level. But I think that latter part could well be um, uh, used again were there to be a uh, book called Health for Humans or Education for Humans. Right. Like it's a story that plays out across sectors. This is, this is a yeah. good ploy, Pete, to, to A, get people to read to the very end, uh, to get me and Tiago back into the book, and also maybe co write a, a Health for Humans type sort of approach. Maybe that's. Uh, there you go. To be on the card. I mean, I need to finish my first book still, but that one maybe uh, we can pick up. Yeah, Tiago, did you have something you want to say? Uh, yeah, I was just going to say because. I, I do feel this is, and it's a bit of a cliche to say this, but I do feel this is true. It's a book for everyone because it touches on the the, the behavior, people's thinking about behavior science, the people thinking about the transport industry, but also towards commuters and travelers, which everyone pretty much has traveled somewhere or thought about it or tried to plan it. And I think I think having having uh, heard you talking about the, the those three stages, I'm I'm kind of thinking. From your perspective, what what do you think the biggest challenge or the key aspect of behavior science is when it comes to transport and to 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 the transport planning and and, and that that sort of industry? I think it is a similar um, mission that behavioral science would probably a contribution it would make in other sectors, which is a um, a more realistic, a more accurate but arguably a messier picture of people's um, yeah, sure. behavior uh, so a correction from cr abstracting and creating a simplification of imagine if most people chose like this then this thing would work to a 
slightly embracing a slightly messier reality um, that uh, people's choices can be shifted in a lot of different ways. Um, I think probably transport's uh, guilty of uh, reducing trips down to the movement of people from A to B and saying, well, our job is to get people from A to B um, efficiently and effectively as possible. Um, mm. The reality is now that um, increasingly people have more options of whether to travel or not. So there are more non-travel alternatives like connecting digitally. Um, but there is a definitely a trajectory towards there being more different modes of travel and more options available to people being able to pick in different ways. Um, yeah. And as a result, there's a greater sensitivity to saying you can't simply assume that trips, uh, the need to travel and trips exist and the sector simply provides for them and we'll always just look back at how much demand is there and how do we match that demand one because that demand has shifted yeah. uh, and is shifting significantly but secondly for for sustainability reasons and to an extent just the uh, physics and engineering challenges of making things run f faster more often yeah. uh, and even more even more punctually um the answer to our transport problems can't simply be for the next decades to make more and more trips happen more and more often. Yeah. Um, so it gives you more latitude to think differently. Yeah, and I, th I think it's kind of a shift of start thinking about customer satisfaction experience, not just operational performance of the transport, isn't it? Yeah, and a big part of the book, and especially... Um, I think Rory's thesis builds on some um, work that is attributed to a lot of different people. Um, it's known as Marchetti's constant, constant or um, I think Bertrand Russell is variously attributed to the observation that um, people have a certain budget of uh, travel time they might make in the day. It has approximated to be about an hour. So as a result, the more transport connections you make, um, yes, people people are more likely to simply um, travel slightly further than they will um, uh, uh, take that saving and um, take it as a travel time saving um, which is why we see often this is why urban development is so important to understanding any transport issue you typically see say big cities get larger and larger uh, as people are happy to move further yeah. out as the connections coming in get better which is good which is important but we should be mindful of um premising all transport improvements on time savings when it looks like that's not how people actually uh, respond to improvements in the, I, I think that, in the um, yeah I think Pete that's one of the things that I took away from reading you know even even the first part of your book is the reframing element of of asking different questions yeah. for one which is one of the reasons I love behavioral science by the way is it, it does that really well. It, it asks from different questions, and and, they, and even if you take someone like Rory's book, and, and we'll have to get you to have a word with him because I want him on this show actually as well. Um, but but Rory's book about um, alchemy, for example, that has loads of really good examples about the opposite of a good idea isn't a bad idea necessarily. It can also be a good idea, and not being snobby about where good ideas come from, and just asking better questions and, and asking different. Questions. I think your book does a great job of that because it's it reframes for people a right the historical stuff i found absolutely fascinating actually about like how undergrounds came about and why they came about yep. in that way and then they're still interesting today because when you look at the data after a disruptive event 
um, like strikes or whatever it is or works on 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 the underground, people don't go back to their old default. They sort of stick with the the new route they created, and over half of people don't go with the quickest route on anything. So if it was down to the, this, what I think you you termed Homo transporticus, which I love because I also liked Homo yep. economicus and all the other different sort of variations of of how we use that. Um, it just it it screams out to anybody who's interested in behavioral science yeah this we need to ask questions differently and i think that's what one of the things that i find really interesting about that i, I and, and i was this is before i even read this but i was geekily thinking the other day when i was walking along just how many ways you can be late versus how many ways you can be early and i think transport is one of those things that suffers from from that there's myriad things that can influence you to be late unexpectedly but how many times are we influenced that, you know, how many, how many things create an environment where we just unexpectedly are early? Not, not very many. Uh, and I was just thinking about how that is linked to what you've, what you've been writing about in, in your book about like, that's how people are really experiencing catching trains. And I think the bit that was, I know it's just me talking here now, but the bit that made that really clear for me, because I have suffered this a couple of times, twice, very frustratingly, when the doors shut on the train, before it goes and particularly the fast yeah. trains they shut and, and and then you're there and you're I'm, I'm on time i'm on time and they're like, no the, the doors can shut up to two minutes before i was like yes but i'm stood here it hasn't left you could open that door and let me in and they're like no sorry the, that's the policy it can shut two minutes before the time it's supposed to leave and i and i genuinely think planning around efficient timing could actually be planned around efficient human timing i.e let it let it shut just after because there's more ways people can be late i know that was a long point but just wonder what you thought about that yeah well it definitely brings home the um i think a sociologist would like to see the way in which these small things are emblematic of a larger um system and something like the rail network in the uk there is a good example that it's uh, the rail network is more set up for the movement of those cans on wheels and it is the movement of people yeah and i think at one point that um readers of this book often bring back to me is that they like the the phrase people are not cargo mm. um because cargo has a relatively simple problem to be solved to be moved from a to b and it's quite passive in that way yes it needs to be stored safely and upright and things but it doesn't have these varying um preferences and it doesn't really care how it's moved along but something like the doors closing two minutes before the stated departure time is um, see a response from the uh, behavior change intervention in itself among um, um, transport operators um, to stop people arriving, holding the running to their train, holding the door open, and it delaying the train, uh, and maybe delaying its um, allocation onto the main line that it's joining if there's lots of platforms on the station. Oh, sympathetic to all of those things, um, but it's quite galling to see that if the train doors have shut and you can neither get on nor off, then the train has in effect departed, irrespective of whether the wheels are moving. Um, so a more sympathetic approach is actually um, enacted in uh, New York, where... Um, the uh, stated departure time is like 30 seconds or a minute after um, after what it says on the board to give people a sort of um, slight yeah. grace period 
the problem is yeah, everyone knows other options are <laughs> other other worlds are available yes. Yeah, so, so yeah. We don't have to do it this way. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of interested, especially because you've, you've, you've studied and, and experienced a lot of, a lot of, you know, behavior change within the context of, of transportation. Is this something you think about in your personal life when you, when you think about you have to book a journey, you have to plan a journey? Do you catch yourself? He looks re- Reflecting upon all these. Definitely, this is true. I was going to say that. Yeah, yeah. And a three-word answer to that, which is all. The <laughs> <time>. <laughs> it's like a curse. No. Uh, yeah, I think um, it's not it's not possible to I don't think to write the write a book of this nature without also experiencing a whole variety of mm. um, uh, travel experiences, di- especially different modes: um, plane, ferry, train, clearly car, bike, walk. There's a whole yeah. list. You of missed them. the opportunity to say um, mainstream <coughs> and automobiles there, just to drop that in. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's you have to you you're going to bring a lot of personal experience but also i think what it shows is um i know that i'm only one person and clearly any researcher will have some positionality um unfortunate to be able-bodied in lots of different ways or might be um well able to be well sighted and be able to read things whatnot um there are moments where context puts you in a different situation that mm-hmm. you might be really ill i might have not have the times i haven't had my contact lenses times i've half got a half broken leg times i've got loads of luggage that only give you a brief glimpse and i stress only a glimpse into um some issues that uh that face people on a daily basis when they're not just new users and they've shown up to a to a either a road junction or a rail station for the first time and are totally befuddled by it um but at least in transport i think you often get opportunities to get insights into different people because context and the pressure of a journey transforms that experience so much as we might find uh, the difference uh, between traveling to an airport or to a job interview or a hospital appointment gives you so much of that insight into what it is to be um, stressed and time pressured mm. um, as opposed to other other trips yeah uh, yeah i, th- I think i think that's... we did it again sorry <laughs> we did it again it's just it's just this way too interesting for me not to jump in god Stu. no no please uh, i was just going to say that I, I i completely relate to that because i'm i'm a bit like that i i like the idea of, of spotting when i make a decision without thinking about it and since i've started exploring your book i've noticed that i feel a deep sense of joy when i catch a bus or a train or whatever and there's those fancy um, little boards saying the train or the bus will be there in four minutes just knowing exactly when i'm getting the train just brings me so much joy and kind of relaxed that makes me relaxed throughout the whole journey yeah that's a the live departure boards i think are a really strong example of why transport does have a problem of having something that um intuitively makes sense to improve the user experience has in um, robust studies been found to improve people's perception of a, a waiting time. Uh, those um, having departure boards um, sort of like roughly halves the uh, perceived waiting time. Um, but we don't yet have an exact model for understanding what it's worth to install them in different situations. So to use some more broader behavioral science languages has been replicated it's been repeated in different contexts um i don't think it has been tested on different people so does it have um 
uh, differentiated impacts on on, on different um, traveller segments. But it definitely does still have a problem of saying, okay, this board's going to cost us so many thousand pounds to install. It's going to take a bit of maintenance. We're probably also going to want to put a bus shelter up there or some other information. But we don't have yet really any connection of knowing, and it'll increase ridership, so the the, um, revenue by this amount. It's not been yet really attributable or well understood. Um, I think part of that is because it's poorly understood of knowing how much difference it makes to someone's inclination to make the journey at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And also the way in which uh, we don't really understand why some people are not traveling. So all the latent demand is uh, that's there. But I know having sat in the Department for Transport that these these are decisions people make year on year of saying, we've got this bus funding, how much we spend broadly allocate to priority bus lanes, how much should we spend on improving, uh, expanding the route network, how much should we spend on improving the bus shelter and some people says well no one didn't take the bus because um, there wasn't a uh, depart- live departure board so let's not bother with that. But that logic I think is, is a faulty logic yeah. um, but I don't have the instant answer to say it's it, it will lose you this many people the thing is right so i, I was thinking about what you're saying that um Pete, and so the question is is it about the exponentiality of business like it's always got to grow every decision has to be about growing the business not about just improving it for those customers who are using it so that it's better for them only so that they have a better experience, so they have a better day. Travel, as I, I don't know if you said this in the book, but I'm, it might be in the bit that I missed. Um, but travel has a huge impact on the rest of your mood and experience for the rest of your day. You, you can turn up somewhere dishevelled and annoyed just because of the way, I ju- you know, like a sliding doors moment, you know, the film Sliding Doors, where like, in one sense, you have a great journey in, very similar journey on another day you have a terrible journey and it sets the tone for the rest of your day they don't care about that obviously but there's nothing in there about just improving it because it's better for people and people who have better experiences are more likely to to sort of benefit in other ways do they does that come into those conversations or is it just about the growth thing yeah, well, I think that we come back to the point about um, relying on that derived demand, that demand for trips simply exists, we need to service it. I think there's an approximate stat that in the UK, 60% of bus users say they would have made the journey. Uh, they didn't have any other ways to make the journey and they needed to make the trip. So if you're operating a service and the majority of your people are going to travel on you no matter yeah. how terrible your service is, um, whether you're sworn at or you feel scared during the journey or what have you then there's not a lot of incentive uh, not a lot of a um, an ecosystem to say let's make this trip more joyful and more pleasant um that i think is a dead end because um obviously misses all the um that's your 60 percent of current users but you go well if you made it more pleasant maybe you get another you get another 50 percent of users um on top um, I think these things come out subtly in our conversation, like um, the gratitude people show for people making a trip to, to come and see them, that sometimes the accessing of another service or meeting someone is shown by saying, oh, you know, you, you got out of the house and thanks for making the, the journey over some of these things that I've acknowledged as being uh, travel, being 
effortful. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Uh, so that does come through. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting point. Um, okay, so a point that I think, uh, a point that I think is that I would like to explore a little bit more is the extent. Again, my thesis is looking at the individualization and how individual we think about travel and transport. But I think the element we're often missing is assuming that the traveler is the customer. Um, no, yeah. But often the traveler is not really the customer. The customer might be the, the, the school, the, the business site, yeah. the hospital. In a way, the, the cinema is the customer for some trips because yeah. they are they are bent they are their revenue or they are benefiting from getting people from some place to, yeah. to their um, place of business because transport is a means be to really, an end isn't it transport is a means to an end isn't it it's often a means to an end i defend that there are times and it plays a role in getting out there and you know as a travel enthusiast i'd say it, it plays a uh, plays a point and we saw that during lockdown that people want to see other parts of their beyond the, the four walls and the mile or two from their house but when we shift away from not always thinking of the um, person traveling as the customer then you can start thinking of some cleverer ways uh, you might get you might pay or remunerate people for travel because at the moment even your standard business trip is is expected that you would book a train you get the receipt and you'd expense it um, sometimes things are booked on your behalf but I think we could quite quickly move on to credits being loaded onto a mobility as a service sort of app um, call it what you will um, and you being able to travel because you've sort of been give, given that ability to, to travel for particular journeys and the Covid pandemic obviously showed that there people have different um, there are different importances or essential journeys uh, to be made so that's a whole area to explore a bit further but that's that's me and my transport setting i like the third, uh, i like the term travel enthusiast by the way um i think i'm a travel enthusiast sometimes um but the the um the thing so before I, what, what i want to do is i want to i want to cut us over to like what you think we should be doing more of but before that um a, a futurology question just popped into a, my head and i know tiago likes the word futurology because he goes on about it quite a lot i love it um yeah what is the future of transport when you when not everyone owns a car and we have that like collectivized transport that's very because there's a lot of autonomous vehicles that are sort of you know apparently coming down the line but then they've apparently been coming down the line for some years in sci-fi terms um what is the future how would that how might that shift in your mind um towards that and is that where we should go Mm. Well, you've you've gravitated towards the future of transport maybe being more autonomous, and you'd be among good company in people seeing that as being a forefront. I suppose because the private vehicle is um, racks up by far the most mileage of of all yeah. trips. It comprises most of the trips we make. Um, autonomy, on the one hand, seems like it would be totally mind blowing, and it would be really different. But then, obviously, for a taxi user or a bus user then you'd say it's not going to be a whole lot of different <laughs> no. experience it'll clearly be very novel to begin with but it won't be um in and of itself it can't be that much more like can't really be much more luxurious than a train um uh, but it's the trouble with the train is all the fat yeah, yeah. that sits on either side so i think that i think there's a stronger future in transport of being much better connected in all these links being much easier and smoother to switch from different 
journeys, um, different modes of travel. Um, I think one of the big things we're going to need to see is uh, whether there's a continuing trajectory to sort of re for reducing uh, trip trip rates. So the number of trips people mm. make in a year would make a really big difference. Um, and the distance people live apart from one another. So in some sense, a lot of our travel behavior in the decades to come has been set up by demography, the population size and its distribution. And one aspect that we can't really row back on now is for international travel. So the way that people have now moved over the 20th century to migrate, to live in different countries, but maintain family connections in other countries. And you can see why that's entirely defensible and a human nature to want to see your parents mm -hmm. if you who live in Australia and go back to see them quite a bit. But where we think of those as leisure travel, it's as though that thing gets bundled up as it being a holiday, but it strikes me a holiday is so different to this more deeper human connection of, of, of seeing people. So I think a future of travel depends upon some of these hinges on how often do we want to see and come into contact with other people. Yeah. One of the factors that's going to shift quite a bit is as the decades move on and fewer and fewer younger people, so sort of roughly 18 to 30, are taking up a driving license, then it begs the question, they're now going to get, they're now getting into the 30s and the 40s. Um, and uh, if we see car ownership declining, then will there be a resurgence if there were more automated vehicles? So is it the reason that they don't actually want to be behind the steering wheel? Or is it the reason that those trips have declined because they um, don't have as much need for the thing that they car um, gives them access to maybe cities have got easier to live in without a car or um, the need to, to travel has been um, been uh, created by by other means I'm struck by the statistic that um, I think it's found that uh, pe younger people who are more active on social media also take more trips so it's one of these confusing oh. assumptions that still needs to be questioned about whether digital connectivity is a catalyst for more in-person contact or whether it's um, substituting it. I think the um, pessimist would sort of think, oh, all the kids are at home and they don't even go yeah. and meet up with their friends yeah. anymore because they all just connect. That's a slightly uh, 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 granddad type thing to, to say. Yeah. Uh, but I think, uh, I think we don't yet know we're in the mix in the midst of it's actually quite exciting isn't it because we don't know um I, I, and i think it that's why that's a really interesting place for you to be i suppose because it's it's going to be in these nuanced sort of discussions and assumptions that can be tested that that the future is going to be made and we don't have billions to invest in it. Well, we definitely don't have billions after HS2, but like we don't have billions to just always invest in just infrastructure. And you, I think you said in the, in the book about um, it's in the behavioral sciences that you've got really good sort of bang for your buck. I don't think you said it like that, but that's where the real, really good bang for your buck can come when you don't have billions to invest in every transport related decision. Yeah. And um it's hard in the UK, I'd definitely concentrate more on UK 
transport fluid in the statistics but when you see the privatization of uh, rail in the uk in the 1990s to shift it to um uh, private train operating companies operating the trains not the tracks and much of the system and they don't own the tra- they don't actually own the trains themselves no. <laughs> um, so they're kind of slightly shelled companies but it's often been the correlation of saying look privatization happened look at what happened in the 90s the 2000s the 2010s loads more people were taking rail i think rory and i's perspective was saying hang on a minute i mean that's not that's not the ideal kind of study design um of looking at cause and effect but there were also wider processes at play and some relatively quick research leads you to look at um rail travel in other countries uh france germany italy which also went up substantially the uk actually went up did go up the most um but it's increased by to the tune of like 30 40 50 60 percent in other european countries and some of our thesis is that during the 90s and the 2000s, 2010s, rail infrastructure got a huge upgrade in terms of people suddenly brought their own devices, their own travel companions with them. And you could sit on a train and you could, well, actually to, to take the customer journey, you could use a digital timetable to look up at your convenience at home exactly when the trains were going to run. Yeah. Before then, you had to presumably i barely have memory of this have a train timetable at home or uh, call up a number and find it but as soon as you then get to the station you can see where something's traveling when you're on the train you can convene while traveling you can um, text or just make a basic phone call of to uh, rendezvous with people and meet up with them which makes a great increases flexibility a great deal as far as i can tell and then lastly, obviously, it becomes an entertainment device and a uh, productivity device while, while traveling. Um, and obviously, a, su- a supercomputer in your hand that can um, optimize your trip in all manner of different ways. Yeah. And now, obviously, it becomes a payment device. So you don't re- even rely on um, tickets and so on and so forth. So there are things happening under the noses of um, the infrastructure itself that are transforming the way people can use it. Yeah, I love the, I love the framing of that, that transport got a huge upgrade as smartphones became more sophisticated. That's that's an interesting point, actually. Um, well, I think the adoption of smartphones is one that we um, should probably spend some time taking stock of. We're now about, I think it's about 15 years since the launch of the uh-huh. iPhone, which was often marked as a, see a, a new generation sort of platform. That itself took quite a few years before people actually start having smartphones, the, the, the big screen phones in their hands. We're now at the point of UK adults, about 92, 93% of UK adults have a smartphone, which if you think people are adept at looking to 2040 now, I just wonder what are the things that yeah. have a sort of single digit um, um, uh, penetration, um, single digit percentage of people are doing it that might actually get to, you mm. know, mid 90s is getting really, really high. Yeah. Well, that's that's in, in terms of the adoption of innovation curve that's just your laggards who don't have a choice really but if they want any type of communication device it's almost exclusively smartphones now isn't it you can you can still buy a couple of analog phones but there's you'd have to search for it now i think you would yeah. I, I did try yeah. actually but it has advantages and i think it would be a it's there are questions in transport accessibility as there might be in healthcare as well about the assumptions that we make about um digital access and assuming that a, a patient or a person 
would have a, a phone with them at all time. It's their payment device. Again, assumes of uh, the credit or the but uh, uh, finance they have on available to yeah. them, and, and lots, lots more. Um, they're tough questions. They don't have a, a definite answers. That's where, as a behavior scientist, you sort of need to respond to. Uh, the client or the organization slightly setting up what's the behavior behavioral challenge here mm. and, and, and i think one of the things in that actually is about managing expectations of people and, and i like we've, we've been talking about this tiago and i lately because we've been we've been yeah in sort of design mode we've been trying to design different interventions and we've also been trying to design an environment in which behavioral science can be part of everything that we do including all of the training that we do but also the developmental work and everything yeah. else and uh, and we've just become part of our busybodies just become part of a bigger organization which is really behavioral science friendly they they want that in all of the, the different areas that they work um but they still talk about it like it's just a a, a, a map and I, I think that's what you say is in your book is it's it's not a map it's a manual and a manual that has then a, a wide range of toolkits and, and whilst everyone recognizes the word nudge that is not behavioral science. That is just a small part of various theories that could inform how to, to sort of create nudges um, and managing, managing clients' expectations or managing, uh, in our case, the people that we, that we work with, managing expectations around that is, I think, really important to say, this is what behavioral science is. It's not fairy dust. You can sprinkle on something at the end of a project and it just makes it more valid. So, I mean, it, it might do. And we talk, we spoke in the last podcast yep. to, 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 um, Rachel yep. from Zinc about that as well because she does that for startups and she's been in in Booper and places like that where they've just gone oh we just need to put some behavioral science into this can you just pop some into it and she's like no <laughs> well yeah I'll have a crack because that, that's better than nothing but really we need to sort of make sure we don't you know this isn't the way we do behavioral science uh, is that your um, yeah. I don't know what your experience is of that at, at DFT and places like that yeah, well, definitely Ogilvy. Then uh, something like a pitch process is probably it's typically the the intense bit, mm. the the bit that it feels like you might be on board some kind of um, reality TV show, right, right, right. <laughs> living your normal working life. Intense, yeah. two or three weeks to respond. You can't possibly know everything about the company's business, or yeah. but you take the brief that they've set you. Oh, here's our uh, here's our challenge. Now, one of the typical ones is behavioral science might get resigned to being well we'll put this on slide 17 somewhere towards the latter three quarters of it and these are the sort of engagement pieces yeah. of the nudges on top but the main campaign is is this thing this is the tagline yeah. or uh, this is the tv ad or whatever what have you but see that's the frustration of the behavioral scientists all over that say oh well you bring us in early bring us in early you know help us constitute some of the fundamental questions yeah um and sometimes it's like reframing what problem the client thinks they have and the sets of solutions and levers they might have uh i definitely remember pitch for um hmrc of getting people to complete their self um self-assessment tax returns earlier they find they're inundated with calls and submissions at the uh what is it the end of january when the deadline's coming if only we could get people to submit earlier mm. and, and things so the narrow question is like what should that um set of communications be in january but then the behavioral scientists sort of ask some bigger questions about what are people thinking and doing over summer and how could they rethink how do they think about their taxes what's their association with taxes all these um 
bigger research questions. When it came to being in when it came to being in DFT, I think we struck on a, a decent um, differentiation between the role behavioral science plays in optimizing uh, policies and communications. Sometimes it's something that's already out, and it, it could be it's put to the task to be to 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 be made to work harder, and then uh, to create the role for creating new. And I think that gives a a decent balance. And in a portfolio of work, you wouldn't expect you wouldn't want to do only optimization work, um, and you probably wouldn't also only do um, the create new things. So I think that balance portfolio is the way to go. Yeah, I was just I was just going to say it, it's interesting to think about it like that, isn't it? Because when you think about behavior science, it's in a name. A science is an area of inquiry. It's not fairy dust. It's not just the marketing element or the nuts. There's so much more behind it. So I think it's all about embedding that inquiry sort of approach and stance in in the work that we do, rather than just add it as an add-on on a slide or, or on a sort of a, a presentation, isn't it? Yeah, for sure, for sure. I think there's a um... I'm most excited by the science aspect of having a hypothesis and running a test yeah. and seeing what works and updating our viewpoint and then going around in that cycle um, sort of over and again. But a lot of companies want advisors and want consultants and they want someone to say, I'm, I'm paying you for your knowledge and what you already know and we only get to do this once. There isn't a testing structure available for this or it's happening too soon. Should we do this or this? And that's where you're advice or consultancy part comes in um, or you're leveraging different evidence i suppose a, a doctor plays a role in that a, a doc i mean a general practitioner isn't themselves a scientist they're not really doing science they're applying scientific knowledge to uh, many sets of, of patients um, and sometimes a practicing behavioral scientist looks a little bit more like that don't they um, yeah, Pete, that's it's really interesting. I think what that moves us to is because we are, characteristically could probably talk. And I think even when we had our first chat a yeah. months ago, we, we talked for about an hour and a half. <laughs> we were supposed to just have a 10 minute chat um, <laughs> and we could probably keep going and would. Um, but what I what I wonder was on that, how, what is your advice then to, to people coming into behavioral science? Because it is growing. As a, as a field and it's growing into different areas as you say in government you know you said dft now has you know more, more and more people in in the behavioral science uh unit or whatever obviously the, the obvious example everyone talks about is the cabinet office um and, and the bit team now but what is your advice then to people coming into behavioral sciences either either interested in it or already in career and trying to sort of bring it into their work or people thinking about a career in the behavioral sciences yeah well, I think to embed in organisations, uh, you definitely need senior leadership to be uh, bought into it. Yeah. And that you definitely need... That's typically how a job role will be created. Mm. I think I'd have a bit of a warning flag if I were the only behavioural scientist in an organisation because then you get hired a little bit more to give a behavioural perspective, which plays a role, but as a one-person... Uh, there's only so much you can do. Let me challenge um, that then from the this... perspective of an employer who wants to do some behavioural science, wants to bring behavioural science in, but can't justify, say, a team. Um, and therefore, like, how do they, just to layer onto that question, how do they bring behavioural science into their organisation? 
Yeah, well, you'd be a bit for Catch-22, wouldn't you? Yeah, or you... You might... I would make... I often make parallels to data science, and I think it, I think there is a reasonable... Uh, you would have a reasonable pushback from a data scientist to say, yeah, I mean, if you're extremely talented, maybe one person could be a data scientist of their own and run, create dashboards, run an analyses, and lots more. But they would say, no, I kind of need to be a... You want a senior data scientist. You want maybe want a, a, an analyst to be more in the in the programs or in the work, um, and people would readily accept that it's a difficult skill set, um, and you would want a team of people. I I think that behavioral science does warrant warrant that. If you want to start with just one person, then it might depend on what team they're embedded in within. So yeah. Uh, yeah. whether it's research and insights or it's a more operational team. Um, yeah, that's probably one of the big distinctions. What what it's embedded in. When that person's there, I think they're. I'm. I'm. You can already hear. I'm keen for the balanced portfolio of work. Mm. There's no one thing that will will win out, but it's important to get a an early clear trial on the board that demonstrates practical value. Um, doesn't mean that the thing actually has to work in inverted commas. Um, that you need to run a trial and you test three different things and you go, ah, the way we were going to do it was this much, but we added so much percent improvement or whatever metric um, you're looking at. Um, Sometimes these things can be a bit more subtle than that. Sometimes they can show the um, pitfalls of different approaches. Um, But I definitely think it's not sufficient only to be an advisor and to give a behavioral perspective for six months a year two years and not have any case studies showing um showing the value delivered thanks for that pete i I would because this show is um real world behavioral science but actually we have a lot we we do it on behalf of the behavioral science and public health network i just wondered if there are any crossovers for you from there's obvious links between health and and transport but have you got any good examples of where health and transport sort of cross over and, and link yeah, there was an interesting project that um, I think a lot of governments across a lot of countries look at, and it's an area of social prescribing. I think so, the term social prescribing looks at these, has a wider definition of um, where you um, where you give advice for someone to change uh, and make a lifestyle change that would be beneficial uh, to their health. In this case, social prescribing is being looked at. Um, in the UK as a way in which GPs would prescribe um, cycling or walking as a health intervention. Uh, and it was suggested, I think, during the COVID pandemic by the um, by Transport Minister and is now under review. I think it's a really, really good example of actually why you de- desperately need close collaboration between sectors and different disciplines. Because here, transport has is aligned on making walking and cycling a first choice for lots of journeys and transport knows oh there are health benefits to this um well here public health say well we've got some people that um could benefit really specifically from um more activity but the only way we're gonna we're going to also we're going to encourage or enable to them to do that is not simply say go for a walk in a big circle and you'll feel great and you'll come back refreshed and they're typical response to that would be well i've got pressures in my day where's the time um, i need to make these trips that trip so this is where public health would do really well to better understand the um 
barriers and drivers to walking and cycling. I think that it's not as difficult to imagine what they are for walking, but being well equipped with um, different trips and different uh, routes and navigation and where you would go. Uh, in cycling, a GP would be really well advised to understand the importance of uh, people have of concerns about safety when cycling, cycling skills, the importance of just having a bike lock, because if you have a bike but not a bike lock, it's really hard to use a bike for transport. Um, yeah. So uh, all these things that go uh, around it and um, any trial is going to be really sensitive to understanding, yeah, transport and public health needs. And, and um, other factors like, for example, um, thinking ahead about the things that disrupt our plans, if you like. So um, cycling or walking is a good example. If it's raining, what is your plan like do, do you do, is, is is your role, rule of thumb i don't walk in the rain or is your rule of thumb i put my get my brolly out and put my wellies on and go out like predetermining that ahead of time and then also putting preparation in place but sort of adding if you go, go to a sort of a, a behavior change technique approach like adding objects to your environment so it's easy to do when at the time that that you, that, that might come the coat is easy, the umbrella's there and the boots are there. You don't have to go and hunt around for them, which is just adding that, you know, effort required to be able to do that thing in the moment. So, um, yeah, I think we've all got work to do on trying to help people plan <laughs> around that stuff, like around there's got to be nice environments for people to walk in if you want them to yeah. go walk in. They've got to feel safe. There's got to be well lit. But I had it, we, we see this is interesting because we had a really interesting conversation. We do, we do um, whole systems approach to obesity work so we support some of the councils that we work with on on whole systems work and uh the lighting thing so everyone said well you know parks are poorly lit uh in yeah. the evenings and so people don't want to go to them they feel intimidated by them blah 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 uh, they didn't say blah 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 it was a really interesting discussion but um they but then the parks team said yeah we turn them off on purpose that's not an accident they go off at that time because otherwise it encourages young uh, young people into there and, and lots of nefarious activity does take place in the park which makes them less safe and so actually turning the lights off is about preventing other people coming in i'm not saying that's the right solution i just found it interesting that i thought that what, what we were talking about it from a public health perspective saying they should be lit so people can go to them and then they were saying well we deliberately don't light it because otherwise people come to them and it's the type of people who want to be off the roads and, and out of out of the way type thing so uh, yeah there's a lot of interesting ground to cover in that type of uh, environmental planning and thinking about how people use things like the affordance of different uh, um, environments is is an interesting topic for us to mm. to focus on yeah yeah completely and it's probably about the this this next few decades are crucial for setting a new standard in urban design and urban form um, that we're going to need to update the need for, uh, for for adequate street lighting and up up our game really um, everything from drop curbs to um, drainage to uh, so put big puddles don't form um, the surface that people can wheel on more easily with different different wheel transport yeah, there's so much more to be done. Such a shame there for the for lit parks that we end up designing people out of out of parks like that. And yeah. I still feel for young people as there being places to go. It's such a shame 100%. Um, that because mm. you go if you don't want to live in your parents' household and you're bordering on being an adult yourself, where do you go? You end up. It's not joyful sitting in a dark 
wet, no, cold, no. rainy park in the, in the UK. <laughs> They've got to be able to do better spaces because they can't get going in the pubs. So um, I only think there should be better use of um, um, sh- sh- uh, high street retail spaces at night. The shops are shut um, and many are disused and some, some authorities now make put beanbags in them and make them a community space. But um, I think there's a lot more to be done there, but that's not, not really my area of expertise, just an observation. Yeah, no, but it is, it is, it is our sort of focus. And, and, and we, we, we had a, a really interesting, we're doing a, a, an insights project in Hounslow. And one of the things that gets said all the time, actually, I've done, I've been in childhood obesity for t- nearly 20 years. And people have always said the stuff that we originally brushed off as nostalgia, stuff like, mm-hmm. um, oh, there's not enough youth clubs. And I, and a lot of people say, oh yeah, well you know we're we're sort of a post youth club era, if you like it, and, yeah. and that's just that's just older people wishing it was the way it used to be, and and I sort of we've been talking lately about the fact that we shouldn't brush that off as nostalgia because there's a behavioural case to be made for the physical environment that is created for for young people. If it's not there, they cannot go somewhere yeah. that is at least potentially productive for them. There's there's elements of social connection. There's there's skill development that could happen through that. There is um, even altruism and and um, intergenerational connection by people volunteering in those to look after uh, people in, in youth clubs and, and stuff. So I think actually it's those types of things that we can have discussions about and try and reframe again because I think in the whole system space a lot of people would brush that off still. Maybe not. Maybe it's just. Um, my perception but certainly it's something that we have felt quite acutely that we need to, f- mm. to to reevaluate what we what we do with insights and how we process those insights mm. um and and just before we we finish Pete, i just want to ask you because I, I, don't, I don't want to give you a complex because i think i might have called you a geek already but um you, you are obviously a transport geek um what are you most excited and curious about in in behavioral science in transport at the moment Mm. He's, he's picking though he's not thinking what's the answer he's picking from oh. five or six <laughs> yeah from a from a buffet of different options yeah, yeah. exactly um i suppose i uh, don't maybe i've got to it's too stuck in in, in universities and academia already is infil- infiltrating me and if my answer is data then that's going to be a, a cliche yeah. to end all cliches yeah. really but there's so much more we can understand it. yeah that's true <laughs> i was going to say that yeah there's so much more we can understand if we've just um, looked from a people-centered data perspective. Like, there's so much that is we think we know simply by counting vehicles across a bridge or counting the number of tickets sold. And there's so much that we don't know about people, where people are going from and to, um, that would be absolutely transformative in, um, in knowing what's, what's going on. Um, and that that knowing what's going on could could have some um, quite engineeringy type implications for network optimization of noticing actually we've got lots of people taking this route versus that route on our roads or different networks. But at a social level, we could understand way more about um, how pe- different households and families and uh, groups of people um, align. And I really think that you could get a lot closer to noticing all the trips people didn't really want to make anyway that were the rest of their life was shunted around and they had to travel at this time. They didn't want to travel at that time. They 
could have integrated with the other trips, but they couldn't quite get their data line up. Um, and there's some really important um, uh, savings that can be made uh, and improvements to people's lives. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, we'll get really stuck in this assumption that transport's got to happen. All the graphs for transport look better when people are making more, longer, faster trips. Uh, but yeah. I just don't think that strikes with the reality of the 21st mm. century um, that we're living in. Yeah, I, I think you just you just summed up uh, a brain of, of a behavior scientist, which is you're excited about knowing what's going on, and I think I think that just sums up the the approach quite well, doesn't it? There's a lot more to be understood about what works for different people. So understanding people have different personalities and travel preferences, and just embracing as a fact of life, not everyone's going to want to walk three miles. Not that many people are gonna i say that many it'll be a bit more interesting. not everyone wants to get on a bicycle uh for, for lots of their trips um and people have different different preferences so let's work understand them better and note these different um segments if you like stop people treating people like uh like their average mm -hmm. and and stop treating them like their cargo as well just 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 to sort of finish on on that point nice, um, nice little just, well there's different there's different metrics there's there's important uh impacts i think i said some other talks i've given that the impetus for applying behavioral science in this transport for humans perspective at one level is just dignity that we should just acknowledge that um people have lives to lead and it's a crying shame if the hours and hours they spend traveling each week are a pain and they're painful a torment that's not a world you want to live in then there are next levels at which um you're creating business impact and revenue and all this p pushing things forward but i think the first level is that imperative of um of dignity and equity um i try to say to myself on that as much as i also like getting carried away with some geekery or extra transport tech that would make my trip more um that little bit more joyful yeah yeah, I think that's a good note for us to end on. Um, and and Pete, just just before we close, then for you as as an opportunity to sort of, um, where where can people get hold of you? Um, do you want to just sort of tell them about the book just in in, in a really quick synopsis, uh, so they can go and find it and buy it? I note that you can't listen to it, otherwise I would have got all the way through it. I, I very rarely read anymore, so that's just just another defence of my earlier admission. No, um, the book Transport for Humans. Are we nearly there yet? Um, it's available on Amazon or direct from the uh, publishers along the publishing partnership. Um, it says that engineers design transport systems, but people use them. And the way an engineer measures success in speed and time and efficiency isn't always the way um, a person measures a good journey. And kind of goes on and on from there. On um, and on. That, you that's can... a good way to describe you, but it goes on and on <laughs> after that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, there's a website uh, put out earlier this year, transportforhumans.com, which has uh, got a lot of different resources. Um, Radio 4 interview Rory and I did. That's just a half hour uh, summary articles that we've written different ways in. Obviously, our contact details. Um, yeah. yeah. And an audio book. Uh, is something that I would really like to work on. So thanks for there the you feedback. Go. I would like you to work on yeah. it. I, I find them so much more accessible now. 
Um, and also, if, are you on social media? Or any, if anyone wants to get hold of you and Pete, uh, yeah, on Twitter, uh, Pete underscore Dyson. Yeah, active on Twitter. Great. Perfect. Okay, well, um, Pete, thank you so much for your time. I, this is fascinating chat. Lovely to be actually talking about something slightly different to um, health, yeah. although it is inherently, as you say, it is inherently sort of linked to people's health and well-being and happiness uh, in how they spend their time. So thank you very much for your time. Um, Tiago, did you have anything, any last uh, points you want to uh, No, just to thank Pete uh, for his time and, and for allowing us to have this fascinating conversation with a lot of things to think about um not only when we're sitting and having um tea in our sofa but also when we're actually experiencing uh being part of a trade being mm -hmm. part of a journey and in all sorts of aspects yeah great okay well thank you very much pete we'll let you get back to your day thanks very much yeah. thanks cheers pete yeah just wanted to say thanks again there to pete dyson for a great show tiago any takeaways what, what is your, your main takeaway from that so many takeaways but i'll keep it uh, light and simple i think that the main thing for me was that people are not cargo and there's so much involved in decision making mm. when commuting rather than just time and cost so for me that was it was very interesting discussion around that yeah i love the people aren't cargo thing because obviously it's sort of like humanizing the fact that yeah. it in fact what it does is in, in one sentence is it delightfully sort of makes the point that it's not just about time and efficiency. It is about experience. Uh, yes. and, and, and so, yeah. And, and so if you wanted to check out Pete's book, it is excellent. I've now, uh, uh, well, I'm still only halfway through, but that's only because I keep writing so many notes. Um, and is you can go and get that on Amazon or any other bookstore. Uh, Transport for Humans is the name of his book. Um, Tiago, what is, what is the next show about? Who's on the next show? I, I hear it's an exciting one. Yes, so you've got now, a real proper expert on i think yeah people have asked <laughs> for us to bring the next guest um yeah. we've been receiving yeah. plenty countless numbers of emails and phone calls uh, popular and the demand next, huge demand and the next guest is Stuart king himself yes the how man exciting of the hour. and, and embarrassing we'll, we'll how see. is it gonna work so the way it's going to work is our esteemed friends from the BSPHN, uh, Lou Atkinson and Neil Howard, are going to interview you with myself. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be three interviewers and the superstar interviewee. Yes. How do you feel about or, that? Well, that's what I would call uh, being ganged up on, but we'll see how it goes. I am sort of excited about doing it. Um, sort of. Because I think, Just sort of. Well, we've done, I'm a bit embarrassed by it, but we've done a lot of stuff, I think, in Busybodies. And, and uh, so I suppose there's some interesting stuff potentially for, for people to listen to. But we will see. So go easy. Lou, Neil, I know you listen to the show. Go easy. Just make it an, you know, a light, entertaining show. That's what <laughs> it's supposed to be about. Um, so yeah, it's going to be, so we'll put that one out in, at the end of June. Um, uh, so fingers crossed that goes well. And, uh, anything else you wanted to say before we close the show, Tiago? Uh, no, just, uh, thank you to Pete and thanks in advance to, uh, to Stuart King for letting us, um, grill, I mean, interview <laughs> him next time. Yes, yes, yes. Interview. Yes. Yeah. I saw the, yes. uh, inverted commas that you used there. Um, yes. Thank you everyone. I hope you have a, a great week and we look forward to, uh, speaking to you again soon. Perfect. Bye.